What a great day for us to be able to come together and to worship just as we did this morning. And then for us tonight to, to turn to Philippians chapter 3 and really just be reminded of the kingdom we belong to and the citizenship that we have in heaven itself. What an encouraging word. What a challenging word that Paul gives to the Philippian believers. I want to share this with you briefly. I know a lot of you, again, are ready to go over and grab some sandwiches and fellowship, and I am too. But I want to give you this brief word tonight that I hope will encourage you and challenge you in your heavenly citizenship. Notice Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Paul is writing, and he says, Brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And thus Paul presents to us this idea of the heavenly citizenship. Think for a moment about your citizenship. You know, we have just completed the season where we have celebrated this idea of patriotism or our citizenship that God has given us here in the United States of America. Just a few weeks ago, this sanctuary was filled with people who had come to thank God for the freedom that they had and for them to also reflect upon that freedom and, and what that responsibility meant in their hearts and lives. You know, that, that, that's great. I have no problem thanking God for the freedom and thanking him for placing me and you in this country. I have no problem with that. But I'm also reminded that the citizenship that God has given us supersedes any type of national identity. That the citizenship that God has given us actually is a citizenship that is heavenly, the way Paul describes it. And what a citizenship it is. I want to share with you tonight that this citizenship gives us a profound sense of responsibility, of allegiance, and I think a profound sense of expectation. If you look at the scripture, the citizenship that, that we have in heaven itself gives us, gives us this sense of responsibility, allegiance, and expectation. Notice again, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. He's talking to believers. He's talking to individuals who've committed their lives to Christ. And he said, for those of us who are believers, we know that we belong to a different kingdom and that our citizenship is found in heaven itself. Now, I mentioned that many of us look at our citizenship seriously. In the New Testament, the idea of citizenship was a serious note. Think about Paul for a moment. He was a Roman citizen, and he was proud of his Roman citizenship. At some point, he even appeals to Caesar himself because of the rights and the privileges that are brought by his citizenship. 
the church at Philippi, most of them would have identified again with Roman citizenship. They'd been brought into the empire and they would know what that meant. They would have understood that and they would have taken it very seriously as well. Here, Paul, I think being in Rome, writes to them from the hub, the capital to them, he writes and he speaks to them about that citizenship. And he basically says, hey, as much as you revere that citizenship, as much as you value that, don't forget the kingdom that you really belong to. And that is the heavenly kingdom. So that means in some sense that we, if we're heavenly citizens, that means that we're kind of outsiders. That means we're on a journey. That means we're pilgrims. And while we can identify temporarily in different areas, ultimately, we know that we truly identify with Christ and his kingdom. Peter would put it this way later on. As he writes to that early group of believers, he'll say, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust." which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. He said to them that you are like sojourners or pilgrims. So we're just kind of traveling through this, this world to some degree. We're just, we're just kind of passing through temporarily. You know, there are places that we can feel at home and there are places that maybe we feel like we're outsiders, right? Some of you ever been in, have you ever been in a place where you felt like an outsider? A little bit? Well, now, hear me out here. When I moved to South Louisiana, I felt like an outsider. I don't know, maybe it's something about the speech. Or maybe it was something about my roots. But I did feel a little bit like an outsider. It was just a different culture for me. I mean, I was there and, you know, just, just a little bit strange. I, I told you a few weeks ago, I think those of you, maybe on Wednesday night or Sunday night, I forget that. But, I mean, they ate things I did not eat, you know. And it was always funny. I'd call my dad and uh, my dad would say, well, Reg, what are you eating that's crawled out of the ocean today? And I'd say, what do you mean? He said, well, you're always eating something like that. You know, seafood in North Mississippi was catfish, okay? That's seafood in North Mississippi. It was just different. It was just different. It just Now, look, I actually learned to love it, and especially the food, especially the food. And, and, and you know, people make you feel welcome, and it was a, it was a great time of ministry for me. You know, there are places you just don't feel quite comfortable, places that you're not quite at home. For the believer, there's a sense of where we're not quite at home yet. We don't, we don't feel quite that comfortable here. There's something else. There's something else we identify with. And that is because we belong again to a different kingdom. We have a citizenship in heaven itself. That's what Paul is speaking about. That is what Peter is speaking about later on. And if we have a different citizenship, 
that citizenship carries with it a profound sense of responsibility to this kingdom. I I believe, you were here a few weeks ago, I, I believe that those who call themselves Christians ought to be the best citizens a nation has. I believe that those of us who call ourselves Christians ought to be the best employees a company has. I think somehow it all transcends. If we're the believers, we should be. We should exemplify excellence in our lives. I believe there's a responsibility we have. But again, if we have a heavenly citizenship, then that citizenship calls us to a responsibility to a different kingdom. We are to walk just like Christ walked. We are to follow him and the example of those apostles as it has been laid down for us. Notice verse 17. When Paul was addressing them, he said, Brethren, remember this is a church that he uh, really founded. He had led these individuals to Christ as we see in the story in the book of Acts. And he says, Brothers, join in following my example. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. So what Paul says is you have a responsibility to walk a certain way. You have a responsibility to live in a certain way. And and Paul says this. It is an incredible statement. He says, we've given you an example. We've given you a pattern. Now, if you were to just read that verse outside of its context, some of you would probably dismiss Paul as this arrogant kind of theologian, this arrogant uh, preacher that is writing. I mean, for him to say, look at us and follow us. Paul was anything but arrogant. Those verses that precede verse 17, he clearly states that he has not arrived yet. He clearly says You know, we're trying to forget those fleshly things of the past and we're reaching forward to something that is better, but we've not attained all of it yet. We are reaching that way. We're trying, we're growing in Him, but we've not gotten to perfection yet. Paul knew that. Paul recognized that in his life. But listen, Paul in his consistent lifestyle before Christ could also point to to who he was and say, I'm trying to give you an example. And I think if you examine my life, you would find a pattern that you can follow. And also for the others who are leading. What an awesome statement. And how that should characterize us, right? None of us have arrived. Absolutely we have not. But how we should live daily so that we could say to our kids, this is an example. To our grandkids, this is an example. To other believers, this is an example. We believe our citizenship carries with it serious responsibility. And we are walking, we are living in such a way we would call you to follow. Now, there are people out there that will push back. As a matter of fact, there are people out there that will oppose that type of walk and that type of example. Notice verse 18, he said, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, 
Notice this is like an emotional outburst, if you will, from Paul. He's crying over this. I, I think literally he is shedding tears as he is writing this because he says there are people literally that are enemies of the cross of Christ. And then he describes how they have put their earthly mindset over the heavenly mindset. He talks about how they have worried more about diets and they've worried more about ritual than they have Christ Jesus. And he says, I weep over those individuals. He said, they're there and they will oppose us. But he said, in the midst of all of that, we are to have a responsibility before God. We're to scope them out. I love that word because that's literally what it says in the New Testament. Like scope them out, look for them, see that they're there, but live an example. Know that there's a target on your back if you try to live an example for Christ Jesus. And know that Satan would do anything and everything that he could to bring your testimony down. People have asked me this week about a, about a certain football coach in Mississippi. And I know, you know, people we always give back and forth a lot of times with our schools. But friends, how tragic is that? You know, people have asked me and I've gotten this. I said, how tragic is it? Especially this, that someone who professes Christ publicly has had to go through these kinds of issues. Now, let me just say this. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. If anything, we need to be reminded we all need a Savior because we are all bad people. We hate to admit that, but we are all bad. That's the reason Jesus had to come and die for us. But how bad for the kingdom? How difficult for the kingdom of God? Look, I'll be honest with you. I love for football games to be won and for, you know, to root people on. That's part of me. But there are some things a whole lot more important than football. How tragic it is to see one that has given an example have such a stumble in his life. It's one of those moments I think we should pray for the family and for others. But listen, it should remind us. What did I say a moment ago? If you have visibility, if you have a public witness of Christ, I'm going to tell you that the adversary will come against you. He will tempt you. He will put everything he can in your path to trip you up because what he wants to do is to mar the testimony of Christ. But thanks be to him that even when we mar his testimony, he is greater than all of our failures. We have a responsibility to serve him. We have a responsibility to be heavenly minded. I used to hear people say, preachers in particular say, don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. You ever heard them say that? I will be honest with you. I don't know if I've ever run into somebody like that though. I think most of us are still trying to work on our heavenly mindedness. We have a responsibility to look toward heaven's 
citizenship. Our citizenship also carries with it a profound sense of allegiance. I'm grateful for those people that that demonstrate allegiance to their nation, to their country. We're some of us are about to get ready to go to Canada and they just had their I think it was their 100th birthday celebration up in Canada. And it was a, it was a great kind of a celebration I was looking at. I think that's great, that's wonderful, but again, transfer some of that for a moment. Transfer some of that allegiance to the kingdom of God. That is who we are ultimately allegiant to. We're devoted to. I I love this because it says in verse 20, it says, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. When you are a citizen of the kingdom, it means there is a king. Now, see, we think about our citizenship here in the United States, and it's a democracy, and Coach Barmore, I would probably let you kind of speak about that at some point, you know, lecture. He could lecture us on the democracy in American history and all of those kinds of things. It's wonderful. I'm thankful I have that freedom. That is not what they were experiencing in Philippi. That was not what they were experiencing in the Roman Empire. When you spoke about the emperor, when you spoke about his lordship, it meant the emperor, the Lord. He was the one who made all the calls. Yes, I know there had some senate, all that. But ultimately, at this time, the emperor is the one who is in charge. Again, Paul, I think, being in Rome, writes to the church at Philippi. So here in Rome, he pins these words, the Lord Jesus Christ. That title, Lord, Curios, the same title that would speak of the Roman emperor. And what Paul says is you don't forget this. You are in a kingdom now where the Lord, the one who is the emperor of everything and all beings, this Lord is Jesus. And he is the one that you are allegiant to. He is the one you are devoted to above all. I've shared this with you, but it's had an impact upon me. It was a time in Zachary when we were kind of working through the bylaws. Uh, When I got to Zachary, I realized they did not have a constitution or bylaws. Uh, Dr. Barnes, who had been pastor there for 39 years prior to my coming, he was the constitution and bylaws. So they had not had a need for it necessarily until some things happened and they were working on it when I got there and I can't tell you how fruitful it was those first few months working on that thing, (laughs) how satisfying it was to my life. But um, we would meet, we'd look at it. We had some doctrinal statements. We had procedural issues we had to deal with, all that kind of stuff. We went and we pulled some of those early statements of our belief and put them in. And when we did... You know, I knew there were several things people would have questions about, but there was one I never envisioned somebody would ask me about. There was one statement where we said, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That was basically it, the phrase, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the little ladies, and I loved her. I still every now and then wear her suit on Sunday morning that she bought for me while I was there. She said I was about the only preacher that still wore a suit. She'd buy me a suit every now and then just for that, she said. Wonderful lady, wonderful lady, a great lady. 
she came to me and she said, Brother Reggie, I, I, think, I think this is wrong. And I said, what do you mean? She said, this, this uh, phrase that you have here, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I said, you have a problem with that? Oh, no, not a problem in essence. But she said, uh, you know, it, it's, the, it's the way it's put together. It's the sequence. I said, so tell me again what, what you think we ought to do. I think it should be Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, okay. I really ain't got a problem with that either, but I mean, why would you want to say that? And she said, because you accept him first as Savior, and then later you accept him as Lord. I stopped and I thought about it just for a moment. And I told her, I said, you know, I think when you accept Jesus, you accept him just as he is. Yes, you accept him as Savior. But at that very moment, you also accept him as Lord. You can't accept him as Savior without accepting him as the Lord of your life. Now, I understand. Listen, I understand we grow and we have areas where we turn it over to him more, perhaps the Lordship. But, but let me just say to you, Jesus is the Savior and Lord. And when you come and accept him, you are saying, I accept you as my boss. You are the Lord. You are my king. You are. See, I think we've lost this idea of lordship in the church these days. You cannot accept him as Savior without accepting him as Lord. The earliest confession of faith, before an early believer was baptized, they had to make the statement, Jesus is Lord. And they knew what that meant. They knew that they did not answer to a Roman emperor. They answered to a Jewish carpenter who had given their life, his life, who had been resurrected as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And I say to you that you and I, ultimately, our citizenship is in heaven and our allegiance is to Christ. He is the Lord. Well, let me move on because I told Leslie we'd get out of here early and she said, I don't believe you. So let me just see. The lordship of Jesus trumps every authority. When I pledge allegiance, ultimately I pledge allegiance to Christ and who he is in our lives. But our citizenship also, man, this is a good part. Our citizenship carries with it a profound sense of expectation. It says, for our citizenship is in heaven, verse 20, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So get this. I'm passing through. I, I, I'm just temporarily here for the moment. I do have a purpose. I do have an opportunity to make a difference while I'm here. But ultimately, what I'm doing is waiting for the return of Christ. And you and I might disagree over some of the arrangement of Christ's return, whether certain things happen before other things. But let it be known here tonight among all of us that we agree that Jesus Christ is coming back. We believe that. 
Our citizenship is in heaven and our Lord, our King will return. And verse 21 says, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working of, by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. We look forward to his return because we recognize we're not at home now, but we will be when we're in his presence. Our spirit goes to be with Christ. We know that when we, when we die. As I preached a service yesterday and just reminded them to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, just like that. For the believer, when they pass from this world, they pass directly into the presence of Christ. And then one day, the final hope, the blessed hope, is that one day, when Jesus returns, all of those who have died in him, well, they will see the resurrection itself. Those of us who are alive, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, well, we'll be changed. And we'll meet them in the sky together. We eagerly expect that when the great culmination of the kingdom comes forth. In so many ways, it's here now, but in so many ways, we're waiting for its fulfillment totally. In so many ways, he's already been coronated king. And in so many other ways, one day we'll have the rightful opportunity to crown him ourselves as we worship Him and adore Him. One day our bodies will be resurrected and transformed. As I told again the, the group yesterday as I did the service that somebody asked me a while back, they said, Reggie, if you're already in heaven, your spirit's in hev heaven, why is the resurrection such a big deal? I always answer them in two different ways. One, because our God is not willing for any part of us to go unredeemed. He loves us in such a way he is going to redeem all of us, the whole self, even the body. And second of all, there will be a cry of victory when all of God's children, when their bodies themselves are resurrected. What a victory will be stated. It's already been stated in his resurrection, but can you imagine? Can you imagine one day when all of these graves burst open and there is a shout of victory because our Lord has returned again, showing that he does have the power to subdue all things, death, hell, and the grave itself. And he will transform our bodies into his likeness. I truly believe that that is the goal of every believer is to look more like Jesus. It's the reason I've asked you before that question. Do you look more like him today than you did yesterday? Because every believer should be conforming to the image of the Son. Every day making progress. Knowing that one day, through his power and at his return, he will conform us finally into his image. And we will know his glory and his true greatness as it is fulfilled. We have a citizenship in heaven.
Blessed be God who has given it to us through Christ Jesus, our Lord. May we live responsibly. May we live with the allegiance to the king and his kingdom. And may we live in expectancy of his return and the kingdom's fulfillment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this night. We praise you. We pray right now during this moment of commitment and invitation that you would speak to us. There's some of us in here, Lord, that just perhaps need to bow before you and just, Lord, just live responsibly. Some of us need to rededicate our lives to your lordship. Some of us just need to be comforted to know that you are going to return one day. God, I pray that you would work right now through your spirit. Speak to us and our individual needs and encourage us and challenge us. And when we leave, yes, Lord, when we leave, we will give you the glory that you alone deserve. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?